Welcome to the podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. It's my pleasure today to have Ros Elliott on the podcast. Ros is a qualified nurse from London, England, and she qualified in the early 90s, spending the last two decades in intensive care. Ros has completed her PhD studies with the University of Technology in Sydney, conducting a research study improving the quality and amount of sleep in the intensive care patient. Ros also has research interests in sedation and length of ventilation, nursing practices to improve patient comfort and quality of care. Welcome to the podcast, Ros. Thank you. It's a pleasure to, to be here. Ros, I was wondering if we could start with the obvious question of what our current understanding of what sleep is and why we need it. That's actually a really very good question, um, if you like, a million-dollar question. Um, the, the exact function of, of sleep really does remain quite obscure, um, but it, it's, it's very evident um, that it's, it's required for well-being, just general health, um, both um, mental and physical well-being. Um, and I suppose the most um, powerful, if you like, uh, evidence to support this it comes from a lot of um, epidemiological studies now. Um, we have quite a lot of evidence to suggest that um, poor sleep and short sleep, so that's sort of less than six hours um, a night, um, does seem to lead to um, stress-related illness, um, particularly uh, coronary artery disease and, um, and cancer, or at least it, in, it appears to increase, increase the, the, the prevalence. Um, there are um, fairly, well, they're pretty old studies now um, about total sleep deprivation and partial um, sleep deprivation, which, which were pretty extreme. Um, and, and really what happened in many of those studies with the human uh, population was um, people just couldn't stay, stay awake. Um, animal studies, very difficult because um, it, it appears that the... the um, whatever um, strategy is used to keep the animal awake seems to stress the animal. So it's difficult to tell whether the, the results, um, the poorer outcomes are a result of the, of the activity meant to keep them awake or actually the, the, the um, being sleep deprived. Um, certainly there was a, a fairly major study that uh, showed that um, rats um, had a shorter life expectancy um, when they were profoundly sleep deprived. So long answer to your question, but no one's really that sure. Um, that would be my probably my, my summary answer to, to your question. Do we know anything about the impacts of sleep deprivation in the ICU itself? Again, this is a really difficult one. It's difficult to separate from the multiple factors that um, patients um, face when they're in ICU, um, both the intrinsic ones, you know, to do with their, their illness and the effects on their body, and also the environment. So um, at the moment, I, I'm absolutely honest, um, there isn't anything absolutely concrete. I mean, a lot of clinicians um, have made the link, at least anecdotally, between sleep um, disruption, fragmentation, and um, delirium. But but there's nothing, there's nothing concrete at this stage. It seems intuitive, doesn't it, that, um, that a lack of sleep must contribute to, to patient outcomes in some way. We all know how impacted we feel um, when we don't sleep well. Um, is there a way of measuring uh, that impact on patients, do you think? Again, I think that's an excellent question. 
um, I think we're faced again with um, a very complex problem. Um, and if, if, if for a minute, I, I, I hope not to sort of go off on, on too much of a tangent, but if we think about feeding, I mean, the, 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 <laughs> the, the need for food is, obviously, is, is much more obvious um, in terms of a, a vital human uh, requirement. But in the past, um, researching nutrition and, and outcomes in patients in ICU was, was really very complex. And I think you'd agree that a very large numbers of patients are required to actually to, to see um, or to unpick um, whether, whether it's actually the nutrition, the increase in nutrition that's um, led to improvement in outcome or, or so, something else. So now um, many of the studies in nutrition, you'll find many thousands of patients in multi-centre trials. And I think that a similar thing, a similar um, a strategy would have to be employed with investigating um, sleep. But um, I, I think that it's, it's probably even more complex to unpick for the reasons that I out, out, outlined in the first question my response to the first question. Um, so uh, surrogate outcomes, um, perhaps when we unpick, maybe if there is, this, there is this association we think with sleep and delirium, perhaps we can unpick that and maybe it's some sort of psychological outcome. I, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I'm at a little bit at a loss um, on that one. What are the contributors to poor sleep in the, entire, in the ICU? Well, they're, they're very they're very complex. I mean, as, as I mentioned before, um, the, the intrinsic factors that are um, at least proposed, even if, if they're not confirmed, are things like um, it, you know, the effects of infection on the body, the inflammatory mediators. Um, again, the evidence both in ICU and outside um, of the effect on brainwave activity is, is quite mixed. So um, sometimes... Um, things like TNF can in, to, can increase the propensity for slow wave activity. In other cases, it actually disrupts um, slow wave activity. Um, there, are, there are, again, as I said before, it's um, it, it's it's quite difficult to unpick that one. Um, of course, there are the effects of, of treatment. So there have been a number of studies looking at um, different settings and modes on the ventilators. Um, Certainly, um, central apnea is caused by um, reducing the, the CO2. So large um, inspiratory pressures tend to blow off CO2, and that can um, cause um, temporary apnea and um, sleep disturbance, we think. Um, some, some studies are very inconclusive around that. But again, they're quite small, the studies. Um, other things like the environment. For me, I think that um, we're perhaps a little bit dismissive about the environment. And I think that, that has a huge, huge impact. Um, noise um, levels um, lead to awakening. There's no doubt about that. Um, in healthy populations, um, people who live by, by busy roads um, definitely have poorer health. Um, and that's controlling for all other factors. And noise is most likely to be the, the, the main impact. Um, and sometimes this isn't evident in actual awakenings. It might be just a, a, a much more micro level on their sleep um, quality. So I think the environment's really important. And there's some very 
there's some psychological factors. I mean, the the total lack of control some patients experience, um, their worries over their their life outside ICU, of course, impact. Um, if if um, and of course, going back to this delirium and sleep disruption link. Um, Perhaps delirium is impacting on the ability to sleep. We, we notice that patients have sleep-wake um, disruption in delirium, whether it's it one causes the other or, or which way around it is, <laughs> we're not sure. But I'm sure delirium also also um, impacts on, on, on their ability to sleep. There's, there's four levels of sleep, isn't there, plus the, the variety of type of sleep, um, REM, is, is there anything known about the different types of sleep and, and uh, what we're aiming for, I guess? Um, where do we want patients to be in the sleep cycle? Again, that's a really excellent question. Um, and our data would indicate that patients rarely um, reach um, slow-wave sleep or REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, um, the reason being that the, 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 um, the stages uh, one to four are now... Um, the new uh, criteria is three and four uh, combined to three, um, is that patients just don't have the opportunity to move from um, the lighter stages to sleep um, into to what we used to call the deepest sleep, which is not quite um, accurate, but the, the, the slow wave um, brain activity because they're disturbed before, before they even reach that stage. Um, in answer to your question, ideally, um, uh, well, uh, certainly from the general literature on sleep, um, patients or people who, who don't experience a great deal of slow wave sleep and REM tend to have what we call unrestorative sleep. So they, they often will have, you know, may sleep for, for the, the, the seven hours, which is sort of, um, if you like, the, the, the mean or the population norm, but have very... Um, be very tired and fatigued during the day and of course um, one of the obvious populations to think about there is, is the sleep apnea um, group. So um, yes, if we can leave patients to um, to, to perhaps have um, at least be, be undisturbed for, for 90 to 90 minutes or more um, then they have a, have a strong life cycle and reach um, Sleep, uh, slow wave and REM sleep. Um, this is obviously very complex in ICU because um, patients require a lot of support and um, interventions. But if this can be achieved by a better environment, uh, an environment particularly at night that is conducive to rest and sleep, I think we, we might, actually, many patients may actually achieve um, those, those stages. So in summary, there's there's three levels of sleep plus REM, and the aim is to try and achieve deeper levels of sleep and REM uh, for restorative sleep. Yes, if if at all possible. And as I said, and of course that in a, in a, in the earlier question, the response to the earlier question, the the problem is of course disturbance. Um, but if we can reduce some of that. Even, you know, particularly in patients that aren't perhaps as sick. I mean, the intrinsic factors of, uh, that, that, that lead to disturbance from infection and some of the, you know, the medications uh, towards the end of their ICU stay, these may well have reduced. And so, you know, then if the environment's already, you know, conducive, um, they have at least have this opportunity perhaps to, to um, reach those stages. 
in the studies that you've performed, what's, what mechanism have you used to uh, measure sleep, both quantitatively and qualitatively? Um, we, we did actually use polysomnography, which is um, the gold standard of measuring sleep. Um, very briefly, this is just um, monitoring EEG activity, EOG, um, so that's eye movements and EMG, um, facial EMG. Um, and um, staging of sleep is just based on the pattern recognition of those wakefulness. Um, yes, we used that for, for our patients, but we also asked them um, using a uh, validated uh, instrument called the Richards Campbell Sleep Questionnaire. Um, that has five visual analog scales on it. Um, they're 100 mil, um, and the patient's required to mark the line. And... Um, we also use that because um, sleep, it's all very well measuring measuring something using the gold standard, but it's really important to, to also to also ask, ask the person. When you measured um, the sleep in ICU patients, what did you find? Shocked by the findings, I'll be honest, Todd. Um, shocked both about the quantity and the quality of sleep. Um, quantity was, you know, literally measured in... in Sometimes, in some cases, just minutes over a 24-hour period, um, and um, quality patients really rarely had slow-wave um, sleep or REM. One would expect uh, around about 20% of of the sleep time to be slow-wave, and and uh, because of all the fragmentation, the average sleep period was around about two to three minutes. Because of all that fragmentation, they never actually. Um, progressed through the sleep stages. And so there was a minute amount of slow wave and REM sleep. Um, one would expect in a healthy person to, to have slow, uh, about 20% of, of sleep time as slow wave and REM. Um, and, and these patients were, were, were literally um, either not having any at all or a very a few percent of their sleep time was slow wave or, or, and um, REM. I guess the next obvious question is what can be done? What, what are your recommendations for how an ICU should improve the sleep patterns in their patients? Well, again, I don't want to go off too much on a tangent, but, but I think we should look to our neonatal colleagues. They have, over the last decade, really made huge strides to improve the, the environment. Um, if you go into a neonatal unit, particularly at night, it's, it's really very quiet. Um, there's lots of soft furnishings, um, and it's arguably a, a, more, a better environment for sort of um, rest, sleep, and healing. And I think we're just, you know, there, there's lots that we can we can do. And I think sometimes um, we we think it's a bit fatalistic, and we also are a bit futile around um, how we might approach. Uh, we, we think it's futile because we feel there's so much, in, so many intrinsic factors that are going to disturb sleep. That why would we necessarily bother with the environment? And I think particularly at night, if we could just be quieter. <laughs> Noise levels are really uh, elevated. That was another thing we measured, and they're far beyond the the international standards on um, on, on 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 sound levels in hospitals. Um, and and just as I said to you before, to really cluster care so that these patients have this these these uninterrupted periods, particularly at night. Um, and of course, other things like pain and, and and the obvious things that can be can be. Um, 
treated and anxiety. Sometimes we, we forget that life outside of ICU and, um, and perhaps we need to be more mindful of patients' um, concerns. It obviously requires quite a culture change to, um, uh, to implement something like this. It must be very difficult to get everybody on board. Has, has, was that your experience? Um, actually, I found that people who work in ICU, because the majority of shift workers, I mean, the intensivists also um, are frequently called in um, out of hours, um, that people were really quite um, open and, and willing. Um, but, yes, it, it does take a sustained period of time and um, discussion to, to kind of win everybody over. Um, and I think that... Um, well, nobody really comes to work to do a bad job. Um, and I think that people who work in healthcare are particularly keen to do the right thing. Um, but sometimes we, we form habits that are sometimes quite hard to break. So, so, yes, you're right. I mean, it does require a different way of thinking, a different way. So a, an example being that, you know, you may be in the habit of, of speaking loudly over, a num you know, to, to speak to someone some metres away, um, whereas... Uh, you know, take three or four steps towards the person and speak to them. Um, you, you, the volume of your voice can be can be halved or even quartered. So these these are things that you know, if we're mindful of, um, we can do really easily. I guess the final intervention of obviously is is pharmacotherapy. Is there any evidence that there is a drug that can improve the quality of sleep in ICU? Again, I think that's a really uh, a very good question. Um, we have to be very mindful as well when we're trying to sort of promote sleep that um, that we don't add to other issues like delirium and, and of course, you know, the, the link between um, sort of delirium and the benzodiazepines um, is reasonably strong. Um, but I, sort of putting aside um, some of the recent controversies around propofol, I think that might be quite promising. Um, <clears throat> in terms of, um, uh, of a sedative, it's uh, quite short short um, acting um, and, and perhaps a low dose at night might be um, a solution to, to, to some of the, some of the issues um, but I think if, if we can achieve a natural sleep it's perhaps um, well it's almost certainly um, a better situation than trying to trying to, to promote sleep um, using using a chemical but having said that, some sleep is definitely better than no sleep. So it's balancing, again, ICU's about this the whole time, treatment and care of patients is balancing, balancing those, those, those risks and potential harms. Melatonin has sometimes been raised as a, as a quality sleep producer. Have you um, had any research uh, on that? Um, again, that's, I'm often asked about that. Um, the, the, there, there are a couple of re reviews performed, not not for ICU patients, but um, I think for shift work and also for um, jet lag. Um, and um, it would indicate that at the moment there there isn't there isn't a, a, a strong uh, there isn't strong evidence to support the use of it. However, in patients um, that may be sort of older than 55 with um, a known Reduction or in, in melatonin, um, there may be uh, increasing there may be an advantage in using it. Maybe the, the issue with melatonin is you either administer a whacking weight dose of say three milligrams and you just totally um, 
saturate the person, or perhaps you give it in, in small doses over a period of time, and then of course you, you possibly disturb them doing that. So um, melatonin at the moment, um, you're probably better off ensuring your your environment um, produces a, a natural um, secretion. Now, um, again, the problem with infection and other other problems, intrinsic factors in the patient may interrupt or disturb the circadian rhythm of melatonin secretion anyway. But if we can make sure lighting levels are adequate during the day, so sufficiently bright, and artificial lighting does um, contain enough shortwave activity um, to suppress melatonin secretion, if we can make sure it's bright during the day outside of rest times, and then, uh, then really get, it, get the environment really dark at night, um, we're, we're, we're really going to induce a, a natural state where, where we're maximising the opportunity for circadian um, melatonin secretion. And that's probably better than trying to, to simulate the natural um, secretion by giving it to patients. Ros, finally, there's obviously some way to go in uh, understanding of sleep in the ICU. What would uh, you like to see done next? Well, I, I'd like all ICUs to really maximise their efforts in, in promoting environment that's much more conducive to rest and sleep. I think that's absolutely essential. I think we need to start thinking about it in terms of the way we think of nutrition. Now, we wouldn't dream of, um, of, of withholding nutrition to our patients now. Now, in the way gone, you know, some decades ago, it was really nutrition was the bottom of the, of the list. I think you'd agree. Once we start thinking about that, then we'll get some much, um, we'll, we'll increase the amount of research um, conducted um, and also the calibre of folks that are involved in researching it. And then we may come up with some answers because I, I, I think we have a long way to go. Ros, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today to uh, talk about this um, under-recognised but very important area. Thank you. Um, I thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not visit our website? Critique is a leading provider of online critical care education. Multimodal resources such as podcasts, interactive modules, the journal club, an interactive echo module, and much, much more are available. Why not visit us today, www.crit-iq.com.au.